So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Perhaps you've heard before the parable of new wines and old wineskins. That's what we want to talk about this morning. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples in the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So, right away we're into this issue of fasting. Uh, And fasting is, quite frankly, an issue that the church probably doesn't talk about enough. Uh, But in the days of Jesus, fasting was a big deal. Uh, And so Jews fasted all of the time, particularly because they were an occupied nation. And they wanted things to be back the way God intended it to be. They didn't want Roman presence and Roman oppression and Roman brutality. And so there was all kinds of fasting that went on. Uh, It says here that even John the Baptist and his disciples fasted. And the the Pharisees fasted. Now now we know a little bit of the culture of the Pharisee spirituality because in the Gospels we hear about it all the time. So we know that when they fast, they fast to be seen. right? And so they fast and then they sort of go around and look all um, unhappy and difficult and struggling and... Uh, so that everyone can sort of know that they're fasting. It's, it'd sort of be like if you've uh, decided, because it wasn't necessarily they felt called, you decided to fast one day, and I invited you to my house for dinner, and you came knowing that you're fasting, and then when I attempted to serve you food, said, oh, no, thank you, I'm fasting tonight. Right? This is what the Pharisees would do. Um, and, and they fasted twice a week in the face of everything, twice a week. And John's disciples fasted often. The Jews were constantly fasting in contrition, but also in looking for the future of God. And so the question to Jesus' disciples is, if all these Jews, and there's all kinds of different scatterings of, of sects of Jewish people, you've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, you've got John's disciples, now you've got Jesus' disciples, there were all kinds of rabbis. The thing that sort of connected them all other than the the Jewish religion was that they fasted. And the the Pharisees are saying, you guys don't fast. What is the deal here? I love Jesus' answer to him. Jesus' answered in verse 19. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they too will fast. Jesus basically says to them, if we can sort of reduce this to something we can understand better, if you're invited to a wedding, you don't attend a wedding and fast. Right? Like the day you choose to fast is not the day of some great feast and celebration. It would be like, you know, going to Christmas dinner at my house and saying to my mom, I'm not eating tonight. But it's more than that. It's not just that you don't fast at a wedding. Jesus is saying that his presence changes things. The bridegroom is here. The wedding is now. Fasting was happening so that delivery from the old system, delivery from the Romans, regeneration into this thing that God would have the the people of God be, uh, would be possible. And Jesus is saying, in essence and actually, quite frankly, that delivery is here. So why are you fasting? 
if you're driving to a destination, uh, one of the great realities for us is that as you're driving, you'll see signs, right? If you're driving to Philadelphia, you'll see a sign every so often that says, Philadelphia, 26 miles. Philadelphia, 10 miles. But when you're in Philadelphia, you don't see signs for how far Philadelphia is. You catch Jesus' drift here? When the bridegroom is present, there's no reason to fast. Everything that God intends to do is here and possible now, so claim it. Feast on it. Have it. Don't fast in waiting for it. But Jesus says in complete understanding of what's going to happen, that there will be a day when I'm not here and my followers will fast. And of course we understand that Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection three days later and His ascension 40 days after that leads us even to this day to be in a world where the bridegroom is not present. And we know that the kingdom of God is an already but not yet reality, but Jesus is not tangibly present here on earth. And so the people of God are called to fast. And so typically fasting would be keeping yourself from eating food during the course of a period of time. And the purpose being any number of reasons. You can read through, uh, through the scriptures and find all kinds of reasons. Chief amongst them, wanting the kingdom of God to come but also for contrition, for repentance, forgiveness of sins, to, to pray earnestly for a very specific thing. It's interesting, I wonder, for us as followers of Jesus, how much is fasting a part of our spiritual discipline? It doesn't happen often because it's inconvenient, isn't it? I like to eat. And I like to know when I'm not eating that eating is coming soon, right? I mean, that's like a, it's a, it's a good thought. And, and that's why fasting at its core, the best way to fast is actually to fast from food. I know you, you, there's many ways to do it. You can fast from technology. You can fast from TV. You can fast from meat. You can fast from different kinds of things. One of the greatest ways to fast is to fast from food because what you're saying is that food is what is your sustenance. And giving it up, you're declaring to God that He, in fact, is your sustenance. Now, maybe you really love TV so much that it's more of a sustenance for you than food. Fair enough. And I'm not putting down any other way of fasting. All of it is good so in so much as it's not a religious uh, rite or ceremonial act. You know, we're Christians, so we fast. No, it's not how it goes. We fast because we're desperate for the kingdom of God to come. We fast because the presence of sin in our life moves us to such despair. Drives us to fast. Fasting. The bridegroom isn't present, so we should fast. So all of this context of fasting and, and why Jesus didn't do it and the fact that they will do it and how he's willing to sort of break from things sets up a couple of parables here for us. Verse 21. Jesus has said that they don't fast now because the bridegroom is here, but they'll fast when he's gone. Verse 21, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Interesting parable. No one takes an unshrunk piece of cloth and sews it on a previously worn and previously shrunk piece 
of cloth or clothing or garment because eventually it's going to tear away. It's itself going to shrink and tear and make the tear worse. Now, in our pop culture of the day, you know, sewing patches on things is not really in vogue, so this, so this, this parable may not work well. But when I was a kid, my mom was forever sewing patches on my jeans. What is Jesus saying with this parable? It's like an unshrunk cloth being sewn onto a previously used garment. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is that he is not a simple patch. He's not a quick fix to the old system. He's not just a quick tweak to how things were. He's going to be instituting something completely new. Isaiah's prophecy says, behold, there will be a new thing. Jeremiah's prophecy says, behold, there will be a new covenant. Jesus is the one who brings about these new things. He's not just a simple a little patch on a problem with an old thing. Because the reality is, if you take an unshrunk patch and put it on this, eventually, as, as time happens, it's going to pull away and in fact make the tear worse. Make it even worse. Jesus wants the Pharisees to know that their way of understanding the kingdom of God, not simply just in the Old Testament or Jewish religion, but specifically in the oral tradition, these these voluminous number of laws and understandings and interpretations that they've added to it, He's not coming to simply tweak those things and add His own. He's coming to do something completely new completely new. And if they want to use him simply as a new understanding of that, it might work for a little bit, but ultimately it's going to rip it wide open, worse than ever before. And he goes on. Verse 22, No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So the Jewish people use animal skins and things like this sort of as bottles. right? And so they'd, they'd use them, and, and over time they'd become dried out. And so it was commonly understood that you couldn't put new wine into wineskins that had been used several times because the, the drying process had so left them that the chemical reactions of the new wine going in, the fermentation, things like that, would cause them to just crack open and the wine would leak out. You had to use new wineskins for new wine. And you had to use old wineskins for old wine. And Jesus is saying very much the same thing as he did the first time, is he not? I didn't come to be an addition to this old thing. I came to offer something completely new. Completely new. And in fact, I can't be contained in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant doesn't define Jesus. Jesus defines the Old Covenant. Catch it? The Old Covenant is not a container in which we can pour Jesus into and still use. Jesus is a new container in which a new covenant can be poured into, which is for us. And friends, the New Covenant is way better news for all of us than the Old One. The Old Covenant is a covenant which reminds us that we can't do anything right. The new covenant is a covenant which says it doesn't matter what you can do. God is a God of grace. Completely different paradigms. That message doesn't fit in the old covenant. 
right? The Old Covenant says there has to be blood. The New Covenant says blood is taken care of. You can't pour that into the Old Covenant and have any kinds of understanding. Paul talks about Jesus' death on the cross in this way. He, he says that, that he, he died on a tree. Remember that? It didn't just doesn't use the word cross. He uses the word tree in, the, in this one particular place. And that's so critically important because if you go back to the Old Covenant understanding of tree being hung on a tree or dying on a tree, it's symbolic of someone who is pushed out of the people of God, who is expelled from the presence of God, who is cast out of the collective people of God. He's out of the covenant. He's no longer in the place of God's blessing. This is how that kind of person is killed. And so what Paul wants us to know about Jesus is he's that kind of person. His death is an out of the covenant death. His death is an out of the people of God experience. So that in Jesus, God can establish a new covenant. And that in Jesus, it is no longer, quote-unquote, the people of God, Israel, but the person of God, Jesus. And this is why Paul is always talking about our union to Christ. Because in so much as we are attached to Jesus, we are attached to God. In so much as we are attached to Jesus, we are within covenant relationship with God. But in so much as we are not, we are not. Cannot put new wine into old wineskins. But Jesus himself becomes a new wineskin for the new wine of the covenant. Is it any coincidence that at the Passover meal, Jesus takes the cup of wine and says, this represents my blood, a new covenant. Right? The blood of a new covenant. It's a new covenant for the people of God. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the reality of these parables. This is what Jesus so desperately wants the Pharisees to know, and maybe even more so, wants to put before them to demonstrate the error of their ways to all of his followers. What does this mean for us? It's great to understand all of that. Jesus isn't the old covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. He died on all that sort of semantical understanding of things. Three things. If we could take away three things from this, man, these would be fantastic. The first, Jesus is central. If you're trying to understand life, existence, anything, through any other paradigm than Jesus, you missed the boat. You've missed the boat. Nothing defines Jesus. Jesus defines everything. My life doesn't define Jesus. Jesus defines my life. Religion doesn't define Jesus. We have failed in this way. Jesus ought to define religion. Jesus is central. It is not religion at the core. Right? You don't quote, people talk about this, right? I found religion. Well, who knows what that means? Right? That could lead you in any number of ways. But when you are found by Jesus, which is a much better way to understand it, 
changes everything. Jesus is at the center. Second thing, Jesus is not a patch. Jesus is not a quick fix. He's not a little, you know, those little denim things that my mom used to sew on the knees of my childhood jeans, right? We treat, I just want to be honest. We just need to be honest with each other, not out loud, but in your hearts. This is how we treat Jesus all of the time, is it not? I've got this issue. I need Jesus to fix this issue. Everything over here is good. I've got this hole in the knees of my jeans. Jesus, come fix it, right? But Jesus doesn't work that way. You know, and what he tells us is very instructive, isn't it? Okay, fine, you'll sew this patch on and it's going to look good for a while. Jesus is going to feel good, you know? Maybe your issue is you're struggling in your marriage. You add Jesus on just to that part. Oh, this is good. This is working. But what you find in six months, in eight months, in 12 months, in 18 months is that Jesus isn't a patch. And what happens is as that thing rips apart, it's going to rip even worse because your expectations of who Jesus is are completely blown apart and everything is worse for the wear. This isn't who Jesus is. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe there's issues at work. Maybe there's issues in the family. Maybe you're filled with anxiety. Maybe you're full of stress. And you're treating Jesus as a patch for that particular issue when in fact Jesus intends to come and change everything. What does Paul say? Put off the old man. Receive the new man. He does not say the old man has some holes. Here are a few patches. Have you ever tried to spend the night on an air mattress? Yeah? Have you ever tried to spend the night on an air mattress that has a hole? Right? Have you ever tried to spend the the night on an air mattress that has a hole, but the person whose place you're staying at says that they've patched it? And you know what that can be like at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're suddenly laying on concrete in the basement because the whole thing has deflated, right? When you first get on it, it's great. It feels fantastic. But there's that experience in the middle of the night that this is cold, this is hard, what's going on here? I'm sunken into the middle of this thing. It's enveloping me all around. When we treat Jesus as a patch, it's like sleeping on an air mattress with a hole. It doesn't work. Jesus isn't just a God who's come to help you not do drugs. Jesus isn't just a God who's come to fix your marriage. Jesus isn't just a God who's come to help you not be lonely or anxious. Jesus isn't just a God who's come to help you in certain situations. Jesus is a God who's come to take everything and strip it down and build something completely new. This is who Jesus is. You cannot put an unshrunk patch on an old garment. It doesn't work. Paul, or David writes in the psalm, Psalm 51, create in me a new heart. Right? He doesn't say, remove this bad part of my heart and fill it in with a nice patch. No. Do it new. Have you ever... Um, ever had an issue at, at your house or your place or where you've lived where you've had to replace a small piece of drywall? Have you ever done this? And you've put it in there and you put the tape on it and you sand it down and everything is good and then you, you repaint it with the same paint but then you know that every time you walk in there that spot is just sticking right out to you because you, what you really needed to do was repaint the whole wall, Right? Jesus is not a patch. It doesn't work. It might seem really good right now. 
Okay, and I might, I might be rubbing you the wrong way to say this because Jesus is really scratching you where you itch with this particular area of life. But this is not who he is. He wants all of you. He wants to change everything. And that's what we need. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that uh, when you receive Jesus, you receive him with this heart that wants him to strip down everything and change everything, and you're just going along for the ride with everything. Amen, Jesus, take me to heaven. Hallelujah. But what I am saying is those who truly receive Jesus are in with him for this process as he reveals it to them. Those who receive Jesus as a patch, when he begins to work in other areas of your life, is when you start to kick him to the curb. We see it all the time. Jesus isn't a patch. He just isn't. Third thing, Jesus is not an additive. You don't sprinkle a little Jesus on things to make it all better. So every once in a while I have trouble sleeping. And inevitably, in the middle of the night, I see this commercial for this magic weight loss system, Sensa or something it's called, where all you have to do is sprinkle these magic sparkles on top of your food. Like, they're, like, they're eating like pepperoni pizza and chocolate, and they're sprinkling this stuff on it. And I've lost 30 pounds. I've lo- it, we treat Jesus like, I, I, maybe this works, I don't know. Maybe I'm mocking it, and it like scientifically is a wonderful thing that works. But it seems to me that something is very odd and not right about this, right? How often do we treat Jesus like this, right? Just sprinkle a little Jesus on top. Just add him in to the mix of our life, our way of doing things, our wants and our needs. And because we add a little Jesus onto it, we say that everything's different. Jesus says that new wine is going to burst open an old wineskin, so you better be careful. You better be careful. Let me ask you a question. Well, let me say this because this is the easiest one for us to strike at first. Tradition. Maybe this is less so an issue in a brand new church like ours, but gosh, in 10 or 15 years, we'll have to to be visiting questions like this all the time. Why are we doing certain things? If we're doing certain things because we've always done those things, or always done it that way. You know this at your job. It's no different at a job or in your family. Or in... If those are the reasons that we're doing things, then all it is is a tradition. It's not something that God has called us to do. It's not something that's beginning and end is in Jesus. We sprinkle a little Jesus on it and say this is you know, the right thing. Incidentally, and this is just a side note, this is why church planning is so radically important. It's why you are a gift from God in helping us to start a new thing here and why we need more people. Is that statistically completely proven time and time and again that new churches reach people for Jesus at a far higher rate than established churches. And this is one of the main reasons why. New wine doesn't sit well in old wineskins a lot of times. How do you pray? Is your prayer life all about what you want and need and how things ought to go and then you sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it and say, go do it, man? You know? This is what I need, God. This is where I should be and take care of this for me and make this easy for me and let's, you know, take, if you just wipe this part away, that'd be fantastic and I pray it in Jesus' name. 
Jesus, you don't add Jesus into the old systems like that and say it's all about him. What if he really came and started something new in you? How would it change traditions? How would it change how you pray? And perhaps, perhaps the way that this is most prevalent in our lives is in the area of compartmentalizing. Are you good at compartmentalizing? I'm good at it. I think most people are, even if they think they're not. And so what we do is that when we receive Christ, we give him a portion, right? Like it's like assigning him a room in your house. So we have a playroom in our house, and Jackson and Tyler are in another room, and Rachel and I are in another room, and Sophie has her bed. You know, we live lives that are completely in these compartments compartments, right? Work does this, and family time is this, and this time I do this, and I've got a little Jesus time over here. We just sprinkle a little Jesus into our lives and say, well, I'm following Jesus. But what Jesus fully intends to do is to invade all of those things and redeem them. It doesn't mean that we have to stop doing any of them. It means we change how we do them because we do them through a new perspective where Jesus is central. Maybe you're not anything like me, but if you are, and even just a little bit, you needed to hear these three things this morning. Jesus has to be center. Jesus is not a good patch. Right? Temporarily, very good. Long-term, bad news. Jesus is not an additive. He's not something we just slap on the top. It's not butter on the toast. But what he does want is to change us from the inside out so that in this process of redemption that continues to happen in us, he becomes the container in which we ourselves are contained. That makes sense? And what we know is that the good shepherd He knows his sheep's names and he cares for them and he won't let any of them wander too far. And all of this is good news. It's why we call it the gospel. We pray. Jesus, thank you that you are not a temporary fix. When I'm looking at my life honestly, a temporary fix won't work. I, I've, it's too much wrong in me. It's too much sin. The, the situation is grave. A temporary fix won't do. But new life, that's hope. And this new thing, this new covenant that you are making possible to us, we thank you. We thank you. Jesus, be our center. Jesus, create in us a new self. And Jesus, be the one that defines us. Let us not define you. Jesus, you're more than enough for us. We know this. We thank you. Amen.